Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We are again going to be looking at verses 1 through 26 this morning, and you can still find it on page 930 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, if you just joined us last week, we began looking at this passage, and we're looking at this passage a second time because we want to grow in wisdom. We want to we grow and to be better equipped to know the will of God and to strive by His grace to walk in it. We want the prayer of our hearts to be that of, of the prayer that we see of the church here in this passage that we would desire earnestly to let the will of the Lord be done in our lives. But, but as we know, it's really, really easy for us to pray that. It's a lot harder for us to know exactly what that is in any given situation because, let's face it, most of the, the issues that are presented in our lives don't come with a nice, easy Bible verse attached to it. And even more than that, even when we know the Lord's direction, it's, it's much harder for us to put God's will before our own. So last time, we saw that obeying the will of God requires, first of all, that we walk in the Spirit, okay? It's not just about, okay, just do this list, perform this religious duty, and you're fine. No, it takes more wisdom. It takes uh, a better relationship than that. We are called to walk in the Spirit. And this passage provided us with a real-life scenario so that we could see what that looks like for it to be lived out. It's one thing to kind of like, let's face it, I mean, walking in the Spirit, that's an abstract idea. What does that even look like? Well, here we're able to see how that is lived out in this passage. And in this, this text, we found six gauges, just like the gauges on your car to help you to assess whether or not that car is running well. Well, these six gauges help us to assess whether or not we are walking in the Spirit or living in the flesh. And so the first gauge that we saw last time was faith. <laughs> Without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? And faith, not just in terms of an objective knowledge about God or the truth in Christ, but an active dependence, a, a trusting and a following after Him in order to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. The second gauge that we saw was the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, right? God, when He saves us through faith in Jesus Christ, not only are we restored to this communion with God, but we also now have communion with the saints to give and to share and to participate and to commit ourselves to the good and the growth of all of God's people. And here in this text, we saw people walking in the fellowship of the Spirit to do the will of God. A third gauge that we saw from this passage last time was the fruit of the Spirit. And God was clearly at work in their lives, and they were demonstrating this, this God-given work that comes from Him, not, not from themselves. They were, they were growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and, and self-control. A fourth gauge was the sanctification of the Spirit. Though this is clearly the work of God in their lives, they were actively participating and striving towards holiness and purity in Christ. Another gauge, and this was the fifth gauge, the, the one that was really causing the issue that we saw in the text last time was the leading of the Spirit. There was a disagreement about what that actually looked like and how they were to live that out, but what was unquestionable was that they were intentionally looking to God to direct their lives towards greater faithfulness to Christ. And then a sixth gauge that was there present in the text was the unity of the Spirit. That though they might have disagreed on what were the, the next best steps to take, they were clearly submitted to God and to one another for the sake of Christ. They all together prayed, let the will of the Lord be done. And though people might have disagreed with Paul about, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem because you're going to be in prison there, you still see that, that even his companions who had disagreed with him went with him. And even some of those among the body from Caesarea there accompanied him to Jerusalem. These six gauges were, were operating to help us not only to see how they were walking in the Spirit, but so that we ourselves can evaluate whether or not we are walking in the, in the Spirit to obey the will of God. And I pray that you found that helpful, as I did, 
to be able to discern how we're doing and, and how we're walking and what it truly means to, to live for the Lord and to do His will. Well, this morning, we are going to look at another set of gauges right, to help us to obey the will of God. And, and that is, is in, in this realm of having a heart for the gospel. You see, it's one thing for us to know the gospel. It's one thing for us to know that we have all rebelled against the one true and holy living God who created and sustains all things, thus willfully placing ourselves under his wrath. It's one thing for us to know that Christ has lived a perfect life, has died and rose again so that we might be redeemed and restored and forgiven so that we might no longer be separated from God and Christ. It's one thing for us to know that, that through repentance of our sin and through faith in his name, we might live with God forever in glory. We might know that. We might even have that. But it's another thing for us to have a heart for the gospel. And friends, let me just tell you right up front, that is what God wants from you. That, that's what God wants. That's his will for your life. Not that you just know the gospel or that you have the gospel, but you yearned for the gospel in such a way that it is evident in your lives. And so this text provides us with four gauges to help us to assess that this morning. So again, as we look at Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 26, this real-life situation demonstrates to us that obeying the will of God not only requires walking in the Spirit, but also having a heart for the gospel. And so with that in mind, let's turn our hearts to God's Word so that we too might yearn for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. It says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we, de we departed and, and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then they went on we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who have 
who are under a vow, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, I am still surprised that I'm getting two sermons out of this boring travel journal and riveting discussion about Jewish customs. I guess reading those Puritans is really starting to pay off, you know, because I've got these multi-point sermons with multi-subpoints and making all of these theological observations. It's very puritanical of me. Well, last time we spent most of our, our time looking at those first 16 verses regarding this disagreement about the Holy Spirit's leading and whether or not Paul should go up to Jerusalem. And so today, I'm going to mostly be spending our time together in verses 17 through 26, dealing with this confusion by these zealous Jewish believers about Paul and his observance of the law. Now, the point of this section is not that you should pay for the haircuts of those faithful and zealous people who have made vows to God. Now, I mean, you could do that if you want, I guess. Um, you know, I mean, my wife cuts my hair, and uh, I think that Kelly cuts Caleb's hair, right? Kyle is always so well-groomed that I'm pretty sure he doesn't make vows to God. But I just found out this week that John cuts his own hair. So maybe start there. But that's not the point of this passage, is it? No, we are concerned about what does it mean to walk in obedience to the will of God? And we saw that it involves walking in the Holy Spirit, but this text is going to help us to see really how, what does it mean for us to have a heart for the gospel. And just like last time, this text provides us with gauges, four gauges to help us to assess whether or not we truly have a heart for the gospel. And the first is that we are rooted in the gospel. Now again, like I said last time, every single person mentioned in this passage is a disciple of Jesus Christ. They're following him in faith. The apostle Paul and his traveling companions, no doubt. The disciples there in the churches in Tyre and Ptolemaeus and Caesarea that we read in, in verses 3 through 16. Philip the evangelist, his four daughters, the prophet Agabus, James the brothers and elders of the church in Jerusalem in verses 17 and 18. The thousands of Jews in verse 20 who have believed and who were all zealous for the law. And the four men who made a vow, every single one of them were trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin and the hope of eternal life. All of them were believing and resting in this one holy creator God. They've confessed their faith in him. All of them had repented of their sin and acknowledged that apart from the grace of God, they were without hope. That there was no amount of of effort or religious rituals that could cover their offense against God. All of them were living by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as their Lord and Savior. All of them had received the promised Holy Spirit. All of them were trusting in their union with Christ, the hope of glory. It's everybody. They were not looking to themselves or to their good deeds or their religious observance in order to save themselves. Now, how do I know that? I know that because of Paul's response. Right? This is the Apostle Paul, who just a short time from this point, just a little bit later, would write the book of Ephesians. And he would say to them, and he would say to us, listen, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And in fact, we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
right? Now, if Paul thought for a second that these zealous Jewish believers were trying to earn their salvation, thinking that they could merit or add to their salvation by what they're doing, he would not have anything to do with this. He would not have participated. He would not have followed this advice. If Paul, who had made a similar vow back in chapter 18, verse 18, thought that these four men were making a vow to God in some feeble attempt to save themselves, he would not have paid money for it. No, he would have responded to them in the same way that he responded to the Galatians many years earlier. Right? The book of Galatians was written before um, Acts chapter 15. And in Galatians chapter 3, he wrote, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your own eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly declared to you as crucified. And let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing through faith? You are not saved by your good works. You are not saved by your religious observance. And so, so he's saying this to Gentile Christians saying, listen, you don't have to abide by the law of Moses. In order to be saved, you must believe in the Lord Jesus. You've received in the Holy Spirit. Now walk in him. You see, those who are rooted in the gospel understand that they cannot save themselves. And nor can they add to their salvation. Friends, that is not why we worship God. We all, every single one of us, either were, or maybe some are here and still are, dead in your sin, enslaved by your sin, and condemned in your sin. Right? That's, that's Ephesians chapter 2. That's all of us. Dead people don't make themselves alive. Enslaved people cannot free themselves. Condemned people cannot justify themselves. Right? That's every single one of us. Right? All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. All right? And so no amount of vows or, or purification rituals, no attempt at strict observance to the law can save us because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, the only hope that any of us has is that God would do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Friends, that is what Christ has done. Jesus, the Son of God, though fully God, took on flesh and lived a life that you and I could never live, a life of perfect obedience to all of God's law. He walked in the Spirit all of his days, never walking in the flesh. And he gave up his life as a sacrifice for sin. To redeem, to restore, and to forgive those who can never do that for themselves. And because he is both fully God and fully man, his sacrificial death and his life-giving resurrection from the dead is the only guarantee. It's the only way. It's the only hope that any of us has for our salvation. And friends, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Every other religion will tell you in one form or another, you are saved because of what you do. Christianity says you are saved because what Christ has done. And we've got to get that. We don't add to. We don't earn. We're not paying God back by being here this morning. Trying to get in his good graces. Good works are not the ground of our salvation. They are the product of it. God changes our hearts and we respond. We respond in, in praise and rejoicing. We respond in obedience. We respond in serving and delighting and rejoicing 
in fellowshipping together, in remembering and being renewed to live and to walk for him. Good works are the fruit, not our foundation. No, our salvation is rooted in the gospel. You see, the issue at hand in this passage was not whether or not there was some sort of dual standards, like there's one sort of one rule for Jews and another for Gentiles, nor was it whether or not Paul had somehow gone back on the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 and done what he shouldn't have done here. No, the council declared, and verse 25 again affirms, that Gentiles did not need to adhere to the law of Moses, but instead that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And so this passage is in agreement with the Jerusalem council that Gentiles did not need to uphold the law of Moses to be saved. And the strict or, or the restrictions that were given here were provided, like we saw back in Acts chapter 15, for three purposes. So that the church would live together in holiness and righteousness and truth. To be able to live this life that, that we were created and now recreated in Jesus Christ to live. A life that reflects His nature and character. A life that lives for His glory. A life that does not confuse the Word or the work of God. Because that's what worldliness does. Worldliness says righteousness, that's weird. But sin, that's normal. The life we've been called to live makes worldliness look strange. And we do that for the glory of God. Second reason that these restrictions were given so that they would flee from idolatry. That they would not worship and serve false gods. And third, that they would avoid these practices that would break fellowship or cause someone else to stumble. Let me say that one again because that's really what's at the heart of what's happening here in this passage These restrictions were given. Paul is doing what he's doing so that they would avoid practices that would break fellowship or cause someone else to stumble. That's ultimately what Paul is dealing with here. Though at this time, there were many more Gentile Christians than there were Jewish Christians. There were still thousands of Jewish believers who were all zealous for the law. And they had heard wrongly, according to verse 21, that Paul was telling Jews who lived in other Gentile areas to just go ahead and forsake Moses and not circumcise their kids or keep the customs. Right? This, this was not about a confusion of the gospel and the law of Moses. What this was is a matter of cultural sensitivity. This was a matter of faithfulness to God and helping believers to be more rooted deeper rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll look at those concessions for Jewish customs more in a minute, but for now, we need to pause right here to realize that having a heart for the gospel begins with us being rooted in the gospel itself. We have got to be firmly established in the person and work of Jesus Christ for, and, and His work for hopeless sinners. We have to start right there without a clear and firm and established convictions in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our hearts will be a mess of warring passions, of false beliefs, and of ruling desires. Our faith will be in error, leading ourselves and others not to salvation, but to damnation. And all of our efforts will not be that God-ordained, Spirit-given fruit of the gospel, but our own foolish and feeble attempts to save ourselves through good deeds or through religious observance. Friends, if we get the gospel wrong, there is no salvation. We are not here to earn or to add to our salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to His Word alone, for the glory of God alone. We are here as followers of Christ as a joyful response of our salvation. We are here because God has changed us 
we now want to live for him. Or maybe if you're here as someone who, who has never repented of your sin and believed on Christ, you're not looking to him for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life, you are here this morning in order to hear the free gift of salvation that is offered to you through faith in Jesus Christ. You're not here to get on God's good side, to be a little bit better today than you were yesterday. You're here to receive. To receive this grace that is offered to you. And so if you have any questions about that, I would encourage you to talk to someone after the service. And so this first gauge that that we have to measure ourselves by is, am I truly rooted in the gospel? Am I holding firmly to the word of truth? Not just saying that I believe it, but having convictions that change the way I live. Am I assured where my hope and where my salvation comes from? Or am I trying to place it on something else? That first gauge to test whether or not we truly have a heart for the gospel, this being rooted deeply in Christ by nature leads to the second, which is being resolved in the gospel. Now, it's not difficult to see how the Apostle Paul was resolved in the gospel. I mean, his life was devoted to that call to make disciples of all nations. He spent his entire life engaging and evangelizing the lost, establishing new believers in the faith, equipping the church to continue on the ministry after he had gone, and to expand that mission by multiplying leaders and by taking the gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth. It's not hard to see that. He said there in verse 13, and his life actually displayed that he actually meant it, that he was ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And we know that he did. But one of those things that you might have missed from the larger context was why Paul had resolved to go to Jerusalem in the first place. Anybody remember? In addition to that vow that he made back in chapter 18, verse 18, Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem so that, according to chapter 20, verse 16, if possible, he might be there to celebrate Pentecost, a Jewish festival, in keeping with the Jewish customs. He wanted to do that with the church in Jerusalem. You see, as a Jew who still believed that the law is holy, he still saw the value of renewal and remembrance associated with these Jewish customs and Pentecost now more so than ever. Because Pentecost is more than simply thanking the Lord and celebrating the first fruits of the harvest, which is from God's hand, but now it's the first fruits in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all believers. Now Pentecost is seen more clearly in Christ, and and why would he not want to celebrate that with the believers there in Jerusalem, where it all began? You see, though no one is saved by obedience to the law, Paul still desired to live a holy and pure life, and he still saw the value in some of those customs to direct his heart and others' hearts to God in Christ. But friends, Paul is not the only one in this passage who is resolved in the gospel. There were his travel companions who labored with him diligently, in the gospel, they had gone through so much, had given up so much to follow him. And even when they disagreed with him, they were convinced by Agabus the prophet, yeah, I can't go into Jerusalem because imprisonment await you. They still were willing to go and potentially risk imprisonment themselves. The disciples there in Tyre and Caesarea those who showed hospitality towards Paul and his companions and who urged him not to go to Jerusalem did so because they thought it was better for the continued gospel ministry for Paul not to go and face imprisonment. But when he would not be persuaded, they resolved in the gospel to submit and to say, as it says there in verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. 
They were actively putting Christ before their own thoughts, before their own opinions, before their own concerns. James and the elders in Jerusalem, they rejoiced at Paul's report as he related one by one, slowly, methodically, intentionally, just kind of tracing his steps to tell what God had done through his gospel ministry. And it says that they rejoiced in it. They were glad to hear it. It wasn't as though they were like, okay, Paul, you know, go, come on and shut up because we got this big issue we need to deal with here that's really important to us because Jews come first and not to Gentiles. No, they were all about the glory of Christ. They, were, they gladly received him. They were eager to hear what God had done through this ministry and they desired earnestly to faithfully shepherd this flock who was confused They were striving to be faithful shepherds. They didn't want there to be division within the church. Those Jewish believers, though perhaps they were struggling with their customs more than they should, they were resolved in the gospel to pursue holy and righteous living. These four men who who made this vow They did so to consecrate themselves. They did so to devote themselves to God. They did so in order to separate themselves from the world in order to to display either their thankfulness and gratitude for God's previous blessing upon their lives, particularly with regards to his direction for them, or they were doing it in order to devote themselves to prayer, to know God's direction for things to come. But either way, they were resolved, they were devoted, they were earnestly seeking God's will for their lives. Again, every believer in this passage was not only rooted in the gospel, but resolved in the gospel to live for the glory of God and not for themselves. Friends, I I say this because Being rooted in the gospel is being rooted in the truth of God's word, but it goes somewhere. Because being resolved in the gospel is willfully and longingly taking on the implications and actions that flow out of that truth. Guys, we, we love theology. We love learning truths and storing them away in our heads and think that as long as I've got that, as long as I think that I'm rooted in the gospel, then I'm fine and I never resolve. But, but Jesus himself even said, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't just say, I'm the truth, but the way and the life. Because that's about resolving to live for the Lord. It changes things. We, we don't mind the idea of, of being rooted in the gospel, but we think that it's like, okay, that, that means that the resolve for change is somewhat optional, but just as long as it remains an idea, I'm good with it. As long as it doesn't have real implications upon how I live. But friends, being resolved to live or to die for Christ, it's not an optional thing. Just as long as I think that I have a gospel, it it doesn't matter that I'm changed by it or not. I mean, we can't think to ourselves that this is just for a few guys like, like Paul or like James. We saw that every single person here in this text who was rooted in the gospel was also resolved in the gospel, right? Looked different, but they were. But Paul would have earlier written to the Corinthians, to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5. And he says to all believers there, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that all have died. And therefore, all that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but he who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us. And he's saying all of us. Gave us all the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not just be declared, but become. Having a heart for the gospel is being resolved in the gospel to live for the gospel because we are new creations in the gospel. We have been changed. And so... By God's grace, we resolve to live in holiness and righteousness and truth. We resolve to devote ourselves to God. We resolve to live as ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to reconcile sinners to himself through us, whether by life or by death, because because the love of Christ controls us. Not because we are trying to earn God's love, but because we have already received it in Christ. And that means more to us than anything. We do this because the gospel is not just about me and God forgiving my sin, but it's about the glory of Christ in the reconciliation of sinners to God so that our joy might be found in Him. A joy that will come when we resolve to live for the gospel. And so we go to work for the gospel. We raise our kids for the gospel. We be good neighbors to others for the gospel. We are ambassadors for the gospel. We are united in the gospel to strive to be transformed by the gospel. But friends, that begins when we are rooted and resolved in the gospel. And those two gauges have to firmly be in place before we can think about the third gauge, which is conceding for the gospel. Because this is the dilemma. This is the question. We're not going to know how to make sense of it unless we are firmly established in those first two points. The dilemma is there in verses 20 and 21. Here you have thousands of Jewish Christians who are zealous for the law, who have wrongly heard that Paul was teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. And so the rumor mill has been churning, and they were led to believe that Paul was telling these Jews to abandon their heritage, to abandon their culture, to abandon their Jewish customs, when in truth... Paul had come to Jerusalem in order to honor a Jewish festival. It's a misunderstanding. Now, did they need to be circumcised or walk according to the customs of Moses? No. Could they be? Yes. You see... The law was given for the good of God's people to teach them about the holiness and the uniqueness of God and to make being set apart from sin as God's chosen people to be a regular rhythm of their way of life. Okay, this was, this was God's self-revelation which should never be abandoned but instead should be understood in light of Christ. Now, could sacrifices and offerings cover their sin? No. Could it point them to the perfect Passover lamb of God? Yes. Was ritual purification necessary to approach God or to be around God's people without defiling them? No. In fact, what we have here in this text is that Paul was welcomed 
to be brought in around James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem before he ever sought purification. He didn't defile anybody. But could ceremonial purification point them to the purifying blood of Christ for us? Yes. Are vows required to prove oneself deserving of God's grace? No. Could vows serve to increase devotedness to the covenant-keeping God who never leaves us or forsakes us? Yes. Does commemorating feasts and celebrations merit the blessing of God? No. Can they serve to help God's people to remember God's continual faithfulness to His people and to help them to feast upon Christ? Yes. Is keeping the Sabbath a requirement for God's people? No. Does it aid them in finding their rest in Jesus? Yes. Does circumcision mark off the true people of God? No. Does it remind them of their need to, for circumcised hearts that comes only through the saving work of the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus? Yes. You see, in the gospel, Gentiles did not have to uphold the law of Moses to be saved, and neither did Jews have to abandon all their customs, provided that they understood that they are saved by Christ alone and not by works. It didn't mean that that wasn't a continual struggle for them. I mean, after all, the entire revelation of God in the Old Testament that has been going on throughout the history of their people for generation after generation after generation, spanning a millennia, has, has said it's this way. It calls them over and over again to honor the law of Moses, and it was deeply ingrained into their identity as Jews. And so were they afraid that they might lose their culture, their heritage, or their customs as the covenant people of God? I imagine quite a few of them did. Was it possible for them to rely upon their traditions rather than actively trusting in Christ? That's why we have the book of Hebrews. But but, but that was not just an issue for them. It's not just an issue that Jews have to face. It's an issue that we all have to face. Because we all grew up in a particular stream, right? Different forms, different traditions, different heritage, different ways of thinking about God, right? And it's hard for us to just abandon them. People are loyal to their customs and traditions. And, and for many, it's so ingrained that it colors everything that they see. And it's hard for them to see beyond the forms through Christ in order to understand those things rightly. To put them in their proper perspective. And Paul, a former Pharisee of Pharisees, understood this better than anybody. I mean, he knew just how hard it was to see past the forms to the true substance to which the whole thing pointed, which was Jesus right? He even persecuted the church because of it. And so he knew better than anyone the tendency to try to justify ourselves through our own works, through our traditions, through our customs, rather than living by faith in Christ. But you know what he did? Instead of coming in like a wrecking ball to just blast them to smithereens, Rather than coming in and insisting upon his own rights, I'm pure in Christ. I don't need to go through this ceremony to be pure. And I certainly don't need to pay money for those guys to get their hair cut. Now we see him doing it. He didn't want to make a mess for James and, and the elders of the church there in Jerusalem. Oh, it's easy to come in and drop bombs and then walk away. But that would not have served the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, he did this for the gospel. This is the same reason why he had Timothy circumcised, though Timothy didn't need to be circumcised. He simply removed the issue. He removed the stumbling block. He removed that completely. 
right? It's the same thing that he taught the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 or the Romans in Romans chapter 14, where he says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother, right? I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard to be good as spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean if, if you think it is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that would cause a brother to stumble. You see, as immature as it is for us to think that our works through our religious activity, through our keeping the law or whatever it is that we might think to, can justify ourselves before God, can earn our salvation, it is equally as immature to demand our own freedoms in Christ and to say that I'm free to do whatever I want with no regard for my brother's. Friends, that's not walking in love. Both legalism and license can destroy faith. But the mature Christian, mark of Christian maturity is love. A voluntary release of one's rights in order to seek the good the peace, and the mutual upbuilding of the body. It's not about me and my rights, my wants, my opinions, my preferences, but what can serve the body of Christ? What can I do for the sake of the gospel? You see, F.F. F. Bruce put it this way, a truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to his own emancipation. You see, in insisting upon our own freedoms in Christ, we can actually make ourselves slaves to our own liberty, right? Insisting on our own rights actually makes us slaves to the demands of our own rights. I'll give you one example that we see most prevalent today in American Christianity. is this, this concept of drinking. Is drinking a sin? No. Is drunkenness a sin? Absolutely. But what we have here are people that are pushing back against more of this legalistic understanding of like, nope, you're a sinner if you drink, which is not true, that they're going to the other extreme and insisting upon their own liberties and saying, no, I can drink all I want. As long as I'm not getting drunk, you cannot stop me. But friends, that is not walking in love. It's not. Walking in love says, I'm not going to put any stumbling block in the way of you, brother. So I will gladly and willfully abstain for your faith. As Paul said right there in Romans 14, verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that causes a brother to stumble. You see, when, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he became a Jew to the Jews in order to win the Jews and became a Gentile to the Gentiles in order to win the Gentiles, this is not a license to over-contextualize. Is it to say, you know what, most of these things, you live however you want. I'm going to live however I want. We're just not going to talk about it. And we're just going to agree to disagree right here. Or, or here's, better yet, here's what I'll do. I'll go in and I'll get involved in some subculture that really likes to do what I like to do. And we kind of create a Christian identity around that. So as long as we profess faith in Christ, it doesn't matter what we're doing or how we're living. Right? Because we're free in Christ. And that's immature. It's very immature. Now, out of love, Paul was willing to take on the limitations of both cultures. 
He was, he was willing to surrender his own rights, his own freedoms, in order to leave no offense or no stumbling block in the way of the gospel. He concedes here on this issue in order to advance the gospel. Not because he's some people pleaser living in the fear of man. Paul's not caving into the preferences of self-righteous nitpickers, right? It's not the, the squeaky wheel getting the grease here. This is not a demonstration of the fact that Jews come first and and that that way is better than the Gentile way, nor is he taking the pragmatist, uh, pragmatist approach that reduces doctrinal and moral essentials. The solution that James and Paul mutually agreed upon was not a compromise in the sense of sacrificing a doctrinal or moral principle, but a concession in the area of practice for the good of others. That has got to be a question on our minds and our hearts. What am I doing? What can I do to best serve the gospel? You see, as John Newton once said, Paul was an iron pillar in the essentials. He was inflexible in doctrinal and moral requirements of the gospel. He's not budging on that at all. But out of love, he is a reed in the non-essentials. Dogmatic insistence upon one's own rights, their wants, their preferences, their thoughts and opinions does not serve the building up of the body of Christ. And with that, not every dilemma that the church must face is a hill to die upon. Sometimes it is far better and far wiser to take a humble, patient, and loving path of preferring others. In all these things, we are to be peacemakers because the gospel itself makes peace. So when it's not an essential matter of life or doctrine, we can flex for the good of, of the body Patiently and prayerfully helping the church to grow to greater faithfulness in Christ. Examining our own thoughts and expectations in light of God's word. You know where we see this most often? Or where I, at least I see it most often? I see it one on the mission field. Right? You, you come in and you think that, okay, we've got to preach the gospel, but we've got to preach it our way. It's got to come with all of the trappings that we bring with it. I mean, the, the missionary movement was started this way. Right? And so you got people that are coming in, they're starting churches, they're raising churches, and they got pews, and you know, like you go to William Carey Baptist Church, and there's all these pews, and all the Indians were like, what are, what's that? We, we, we sit in a circle. Right? And, and even in my short time there, there were a lot of things that we experienced that we kind of had to wrestle through. Okay, what, what is a priority? Where do we concede on, on this? You know? So we're, we're reaching out to Muslims, and, and Muslims are coming to faith in Christ, they still pray five times a day. Is that a wrong thing? What about this? They still pray with their head covered. Is that a wrong thing? What about this one? They pray and they hold their hands out like this, as if to sort of mystically kind of catch the blessings that come down from God, and then after they're done with their prayer, they kind of go like this across their beards. You deal with that? What about the fact that they still dress like Muslims? Right? What about arranged marriages? Because in arranged marriages, a lot of times, if, if the parents knew that, that this guy had come to faith in Christ, they would try to wed them to someone who is not a believer in order to lead them back into that faith. A lot of complex issues that we've got to weigh through carefully. You know, like, how do we concede for the sake of the gospel? And what, what do we actively need to pursue and how to change it? But we deal with that even over here. Because we, we earnestly desire to see dying churches be revitalized for the glory of God. We want to see that. Stepping into a dying church, the church is dying for a reason, right? And and helping the church to navigate through what those reasons are and make the changes necessary in order to help that church thrive, that's difficult. And so you have to go in, you have to carefully assess and out of love, okay, how how big a priority is it to, to, to... smash and demolish this sacred cow? Or, or where do we need to let this go in love in order to just continue to preach for them and then hope that that, that changes over time? These are real things today that we all have to wrestle through. Now we, we can concede out of love in order to leave no stumbling block to the gospel. 
Now, friends, obviously sin and immorality are stumbling blocks, but you know what? So is legalism and so is our insisting upon our license. And so we must know how to best proceed and to concede for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, friends, there is so much more that, that can be said about that, but we need to quickly look at the fourth gauge of having a heart for the gospel. And we do that in order that we might commend the gospel. Now, friends, if you are still struggling with this concept of why, why did Paul do this? You know, if Christians are freed from the need to seek ceremonial purification and pay the expenses for these vows, why would they all agree that this was the best thing for Paul to do this? Well, he did it to squash the rumors against him and his teaching. He did it not out of pride, but for the sake of the truth. He did it to outwardly display his desire for holiness and purity before God. He did it to practice what he preached for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. Here we see a living demonstration of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affections and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This was a display of the mind of Christ. And another reason, Paul did this to reach the lost. When Paul went to seek purification and to pay for these men's expenses, who would he come into contact with? Those who did not follow Christ. And as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. You see, whether it was a matter of gospel truth or holy living or the unity and upbuilding of the body or an effort to reach the lost, Paul did what he did in order to commend the gospel both in his life and in his teaching. And you and I, we have been redeemed and restored and forgiven, made new creations by the blood of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us to do the very same. The love of Christ compels us to be his ambassadors with our lives. You see, obeying the will of God is not a matter of rule keeping or religious duty, but by walking in the Spirit and having a heart for the gospel. And these four gauges help us to assess our own hearts in the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ. Being rooted and firmly established in the gospel leads us to resolve in the gospel to live for Christ. It makes us wise to know when or how to concede for the gospel in order that we might commend the gospel with our lives for the salvation of sinners, for the edification of the church, for our joy in Jesus, and ultimately for the glory of his name. And so may we all be rooted and resolved to concede for and to commend the glory of Christ, having a heart for the gospel, to do his will. Let's pray. Father, again, we do thank you that you provide, even, even in, in these texts that we so often skim over, deep and essential truths. We thank you that you provide narratives to help us to see what it looks like in real world, real historical um, life opportunity as to what it means to walk in the Spirit and to have a heart for the gospel. God, I pray that our, our desire to do your will would not stop simply at a prayer, letting the will of the Lord be done, but that by your grace, 
through the power of your Holy Spirit, trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would walk in the Spirit and have a heart for the gospel. That's what you want for us. And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts would yearn for the truth and beauty of Jesus. We would not just go through the motions, but we would be changed by Him and for Him so that others may see and believe, so that believers might be built up and encouraged, so that we might find joy in that which was meant to bring us exceeding joy, and that you may be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.